Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Look for the patterns. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Miguel Iconersau. Miguel is an innovation thought leader and serial chief innovation officer with experience across industries, including banking, healthcare, international development, management consulting, and higher education. He currently serves as head of data visualization at Regions Bank and Financial Corporation. Miguel shares his journey from growing up in Germany to studying computer science to working in early cross-collaboration innovation labs to becoming a chief innovation officer. We cover his innovation management strategy experiences and discuss why we're still struggling with decades-old problems of human-computer interaction. We mix it up on the conflation between new technology, digital transformation, and innovation. It was an honor having Miguel on the show. I consider myself very lucky to work with and learn from Miguel on many innovation, data visualization, and UX projects. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Miguel, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. I, I watched a couple of your episodes and they're very inspiring. Um, yeah, about myself. Um, despite the name, I have a German accent because that's where I grew up. I always tell my students not to focus too much on my accent, but on, on the content I'm trying to communicate. Um, I was born to a Portuguese immigrant to, to Germany who just this weekend celebrated his 80th birthday. And he was one of the early computer science professors and pioneers in computer graphics. And um, really in one of the early global innovators. And so I didn't really have a choice in, in pursuing my career. Um, I started with computer science because at that point, like many young people, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. So it was the path of least resistance to some degree. And then got more and more interested in really the side of computer graphics that had to do with humans. Uh, at that time, if for the old folks here among the listeners that remember, there was a time where there were no graphical user interfaces to computers. And when I went through my studies, that was the first time when graphical user interfaces came up and we had to study them. We had to see what works, what didn't work, how to design them and how can they actually be of help rather than just the nuisance. One of my very early projects, it's like uh, what you would call a capstone, was actually to um, define color palettes for, for images, for an image editor, right? And the interesting part of that is that I'm uh, red-green colorblind. 
So I worked in the team project with my fellow students, and we always disagreed on what we were actually seeing when we were manipulating the column. <laughs> and maybe that reinforced that I then always, uh, in, in my career, really focused on on aspects that really made it easier for, for humans to interact with the computing system in, in whatever I was doing. And that later on then led me to uh, uh, design thinking also. My PhD thesis was actually combining AI so that we are talking here early 90s. I'm, eight, I'm, I'm dating myself. Um, combining AI with graphical user interfaces so that the system actually um, predicted what the human user tried to do and then gave automatic hypertext help. Also, hypertext was really uh, novel then. I used Mosaic to actually produce that help. So really cool stuff, still getting excited nowadays. And um, then um, uh, I uh, actually completed my uh, master's thesis in LA at, at a colleague of my, my father's just to get that more international exposure. And uh, there I met my future wife. She um, somehow arranged for me to then come to the US um, and um, didn't arrange, but she was the draw, let's put it this way. And uh, so I took a job then in, in Providence, Rhode Island, working on a very different type of a graphical user interface, which was 3D. It was called virtual reality. And it was about how can human users interact with virtual reality since th there's really nothing to touch, right? There's this, so we worked on command interfaces, so early speech input, where the challenge was that none of the human users could remember all those commands. And so the system didn't know what they were saying. We still have that issue uh, nowadays uh, with Alexa and Siri, et cetera. They never understand my accent. And so I'm very frustrated about that, which is really a pattern. I mean, many of the challenges we are still talking about today and that, that I'm still working on today are no different than 20, 30 years ago. I mean, the technology is cheaper, it's faster, but the HCI, the human computer interaction issues are still pretty much the same. And um, that's unfortunate because we did so much research around that, but there are these waves of new uh, researchers, new people that think all that is very novel and, and has never been studied. And in fact, they could benefit actually from those old studies. And then we also went into augmented reality. So overlaying, if you want, uh, computer graphics onto the real world. And we worked, uh, we did very fascinating things like um, simulating based on the footprint of a dinosaur, uh, kind of the foot of the dinosaur actually creating that footprint and, and all those things. Dinos dinosaurs are actually nice creatures to use because uh, nobody would know that you do something wrong because people have no familiarity with the real creatures, right? So you, you can do anything and it looks cool and, and people love it. And um, then a total break occurred. I joined health insurance. <laughs> Makes total sense after all these, all these nascent technologies, they all Correct. converge. Here is my storyline. I worked for another dinosaur <laughs> from an industry perspective. No, but actually they had a need. So, so kind of the organization I worked for had, um, you know, um, 
dissolved if you want. Uh, we actually, in between, I created a certificate granting school of higher education because through all this virtual reality, augmented reality, interactive digital media, um, we are talking here about late 90s. We realized that a lot of things we couldn't do because we didn't have the workforce. There were either computer scientists or there were great designers or there were great people that could uh, create business models, etc. But we needed people that could do it all, right? In, in this type of, of innovation, like AI and all those things. And so in collaboration with the Rhode Island School of Design, um, Brown University, and a whole suite of other international universities, MIT was in there, um, Darmstadt University of Technology, Singapore, NTU, and then supported by a lot of German industry, Daimler Chrysler, Deutsche Telekom, et cetera, we created kind of this, this program where people that had already a degree in any particular area came in and then worked in teams for nine months together. And we ran that for a couple of years and they had kind of an, an, a practicum, like a hands-on project to work on for industry. And we came up with cool projects, very uh, groundbreaking things. Um, but then um, kind of one of the main sponsors was actually SAP. And um, they um, pursued a similar concept uh, based on our success then in Silicon Valley in collaboration with, um, with uh, IDEO and with Stanford. And it later on became the D school at Stanford. And so my claim to fame is always that we help prototype kind of the D school at Stanford, but it basically, they said the, the kind of the workforce they were looking for was more in Silicon Valley than in Providence, Rhode Island. And I don't disagree necessarily. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, we broke down our tents and I looked for a new opportunity and um, in health insurance, Humana was interested very much in visual analytics in the early days of visual analytics, data visualization of all the data that they had for the purpose of actually keeping people healthier. So that really attracted me. And um, there we also engaged a lot in innovation from a user engagement side. So we came up with cool, um, uh, initiatives at the intersection of really data visualization and uh, user experience. Uh, one was games for health, right? We created actually video games to keep people healthier, to make them exercise more, socialize more with their elderly parents, all those types of things. And then measured a lot, a lot, obviously data collection to prove that things were changing was very important. And um, so that was the first formal exposure to really innovation processes and innovation methodologies. And um, then I got a call from a company in Iowa City, Iowa, if you want, um, that was in yet another very different industry, which was student assessment. And uh, to really lead innovation for that company. And that was obviously also very compelling. That company was ACT. And um, what was very interesting in working there was that everything I had done at Humana almost translated one-to-one -to, -one to that very different space. And so we did games for assessment, 
right? You, from a user experience, how can we potentially one day replace the bubble tests with, with games, right? And you met, you know, obviously were part of that and you remember that probably vividly. Um, and also the need for actually data visualization to create more insights from data, same story, right? And, and so that's also where I then started to understand that no matter how do, deep you are in the woods with innovation, always try to keep your head up and identify, try to generalize, try to identify patterns in order then to apply them to very different contexts. And that's really what I did from there on. Maybe I did a little bit already of this beforehand, but from there on, I always looked for the patterns rather than for the details in order then to learn from them, um, to communicate it more effectively, but also to apply it to other industries. And then after ACT, I had a variety of different gigs. I was chief technology and innovation officer as a small startup not mid-size actually in Washington DC, very interesting space of international development. So there again, we did the same things actually in innovation, data visualization, but now to um, uh, create efficiency and effectiveness around all the data collected in the um, international development space. So this is where, um, you know, the US is, is investing into other um, countries that are at war or that are underdeveloped or whatever. And then you have to understand what works and what doesn't work for, uh, based on these investments. And, um, and then communicate it to a variety of different audiences, the people on the ground, policymakers, etc. And so there's a, a, a huge need also to, to um, think about the design of those communication, right? Very complex system, very complex data, but the audience is not very data savvy and, and um, you know, uh, don't have a huge attention span and don't have a lot of time uh, to, to read 120 page reports. So how can you most effectively communicate uh, this data to them? And so really storytelling was a major aspect there. We even went as far in collaboration with the University of Edinburgh to create data comics for uh, people that are less data literate, right? So, so to use the, the genre of a comic and the methodologies of how you create comics to communicate data in a more empathetic way so that people actually can can relate to the people that are starving on the ground and the people that are at war and have to hide, right? All those types of aspects. And um, somehow, you know, either I can't keep a job or I get bored very easily or, or just um, I jump on opportunities because they are there. Um, more recently than I, um, after teaching for a few years, at the University of Iowa, which I enjoy a lot. Um, I joined uh, Regions Bank in the capacity of head of data visualization. And again, many of the things I did before and that I learned about um, culture, how people react to innovation, what you have to do in order to get people interested in innovation and the whole aspect of making data more relevant through visualization applies as, as well here. That was Thank a you. long answer to a very short question. No, it's great. There's so many. There's so many different areas I want to to dig in on. I one I'll share with you because um, I I don't know if you know this, but uh, this was in the late '90s. One of my uh, early projects when I worked for a consulting company 
it was probably early customer experience. It was for a major uh, insurance company. And I helped, a, a side thing that came up, I helped them build out their first uh, intranet. And the main reason was uh, because of SAP, uh, they were getting ready to you know put in this giant ERP system. And it's, how do we make sense of it? What is it? Because obviously the, you know, a uh, lot of power and potential in ERP, but still really lacking in, like you said, graphical user interface, the the way that uh, most people that might not think of workflows and automated workflows and understanding the, the rules, routes, and roles. Uh, we were trying to put a visual uh, language and narrative around that. And yeah, I love all that, like you said, uh, because I'm getting old enough too, it seems like we were <laughs> we were picking away a, a at these problems decades ago, and yet some of it's like we didn't solve the deeper problem. It, the the surface layer got sexier, and people moved on. But some of the general principles seem to be plaguing us still. Uh, when I was lucky enough uh, when we were at ACT to to work with you, and one of the things I loved, I remember you doing a data visualization kind of lunch and learn, right? And I think one one of the things I found really fascinating was how you were able to show tables of data and then show corresponding images. If we put a graphic to it and we looked at, at data sets that essentially looked the same when they were in tables, but what you saw over time were like a uh, an inverted U, uh, a, a diagonal line of growth or a U-shaped pet, just what that does quickly for people when they can get that that quick reference to, to what's going on and what that that might share. Uh, Want to ask you when you were exploring these areas, what was it that compelled you to to dig more on the human side of the data? Yeah. So initially, it was um, you know when when you were looking for your um, uh, master's thesis or PhD thesis, you're trying to differentiate somehow, right? And I was like, the, the people that were really working on, on the hardcore computer graphics or visualization, they did a lot of math. And while I was pretty good at math, it wasn't that exciting to me, right? I mean, they were really in the algorithms, right? And I always thought, okay, now <clears throat> let them work on that. But how do we actually make use of that? Maybe it's a little bit in my DNA. It was always about use of that stuff, right? And so my master's thesis was about direct interaction that you didn't have sliders on the right and left to position then, let's say, a hole within an a manufacturing object, but that you could directly click on the point on the object to make a hole there. Seems trivial, right? But it's really linear algebra and, and really a lot of math in that. But for me, it was really, how, how can I just make it easier for, for people, right? And, um, and that continues then uh, in, in my uh, PhD thesis with uh, having the system actually figuring that out and not me having to figure out how to do that, right? Because also I realized there are many different users. There is not the one user of a system, right? Uh, one of the systems I actually used as, as a test bed was a, a medical visualization system, 
right? And um, so I had a colleague that developed that system and constantly exposed different uh, people to it. And he complained that, well, on the one hand, he has nurses. On the other one, he has the doctor that never has time for him to get trained in the system, right? And then you have students that are supposed to be also educated. So you have this whole spectrum of uh, technical savviness of time they have to get trained of interest they have that again uh, translate into time they're willing to spend on it and on what they actually want to do with the system right and um and so that was just an idea that came up uh, i don't know exactly how it came up that i focus on this whole area called called hci and um and uh, yeah, that then somehow uh, continued uh, through the years, really. Yeah, and I'm excited about the uh, the conversations you and I have had in in the past, and want to surface a question for you because I know you have opinions on it. But uh, we we we've, we've talked in the past too about why innovation is hard for for organizations, and. You know, like depending on the literature you look at, it seems to be a top of mind uh, desire uh, for for executive leadership. They want to be in, more innovative, or they want sustainable innovation. And yet, we we also see corresponding kind of literature that that says that uh, most organizations struggle with innovation over over time. And some of the patterns that you've seen. Why, why do you think it is so hard for organizations to, to address the need for sustainable innovation? Yeah, there, there are a plethora of reasons, first of all. Um, one is- easy, and, there wouldn't be a problem. Exactly. And, and so um, one reason is that innovation up until recently has, hasn't been well-defined, right? The, the, the word was thrown out there and it meant anything that the company currently doesn't do, right? Uh, so it's any, any, any type of change, right? And with such a definition, you obviously can't systemically and systematically uh, drive innovation in a company. And that's what company need, companies need, right? They, they need processes, they need standards, they need um, to be able to train people, to send people to a workshop or to a training program to certify them in something, right? Only then will it be uh, accepted. That is, that is one of the uh, big challenges that existed. And just recently, there is now an ISO standard for innovation management. A great break, breakthrough. And, and now I think there will be opportunities for companies to actually more systemically and systematically do that. Uh, another challenge is that innovation is so broad, right? If you look at all the, the, uh, the definitions, right, it starts from very incremental innovation, which is very hard to delineate from what's called continuous improvement in companies, right? All the way to transformation, which um, no company really wants to do, right? Because they, it, it is basically challenging the current business model and, and is too far out. Most companies, uh, you know, uh, public companies are working on a quarterly basis, uh, right? And, and so that's definitely too far out. And other companies have at least their annual cycles. Maybe they have a three-year plan, but transformation goes beyond that, right? 
that's that's another reason that that good innovation, sustainable innovation, looks at all those different pockets or or uh, quadrants or whatever you want to call it of innovation and. Um, that's hard to add to to the operations of a company that has already you know maximized efficiencies meaning there is no waste there is no fat on the bone right that you could use so where are you getting the resources also to do all that stuff in addition that only can happen when you well integrate innovation with everything else that's going on Right, but that means you have to have well understood innovation, well defined for the company. That's another important aspect. Innovation is not the same for every single institution and company. Right, it means something different based on the culture, based on the um, uh, product that they're creating or service that they're creating, based on their maturity, right, based on the business model, all those types of aspects. Um, and um, and and that needs to be well defined. You have to take the time uh, to do that, and people really have to take a long term look. People, I mean, the leadership of the company, to not only identify the hard ROI of innovation, but also identify the other value that innovation can create and will create because then again the integration happens better one one example i always uh, like to mention is a lot of companies are trying to be on the list of the top hundreds uh, uh, um, best places to work right many of the metrics in in that competition are actually innovation metrics right so if you then con consider innovation actually a driver of a great place to work or best place to work, suddenly you have an integration point which makes it easier to drive innovation uh, through the company, potentially dropping the, the title and the label innovation, right? I think one of the worst things that ever happened to innovation is that we gave it a label. And now it's something that people can, can uh, uh, stay away from and, and talk bad about or, or reject. Right. If you had just thought about the processes that are required to effectively innovate and try to get that into the company, would have been much better potentially. Yeah, I appreciate that because I think about some other things where you can go back to either management consulting groups pushing or you know, like the, the foresters and gartners of the world, but it, there is an organizational hype cycle, right? I think innovation uh, fell victim to that as well, is that there's this great yeah. promise that's made people don't see immediate results and then kind of reject it. And then late, later it will catch up. But yeah, some of those, th to your point about, uh, especially publicly traded companies, you know, ne needing to deliver and hit numbers on the quarter where some, some innovation experiments need, need more time to mature. And I also, I feel that sometimes the mature organization, like you said, they're, they're lean. There's not a lot of fat on the bone and they, their culture typically is also, uh, risk averse. They don't want failure. They don't want exception, right? Because they, a lot of the way they're measured is hitting these predictable numbers. And the hard part is with innovation, you're already getting into kind of a, a complex and chaotic space. So, right. And well, well, well we, possibly. We, yeah. Yeah, possibly. Because the whole discussion within innovation around risk, I think is an excuse, right? Because if you manage innovation well, it is actually a risk management discipline, 
right? Everything we talk about from design thinking to rapid prototyping, rapid iteration is all about effectively managing risk. So, so, so this whole aspect always oh, too risky or this, this, our culture is too risk averse. It will take a long time for us to adopt innovation is an excuse because if you, or, or maybe it's a lack of understanding of innovation because innovation inherently is a risk from my perspective, my opinion, uh, a risk management uh, discipline. Really, that's what it is. And uh, if it's if it's looked at as such, it's much easier again to integrate in existing uh, corporations because that's all they do: risk management, right? Most, yeah. Most and I, I'd say from my perspective, I agree with you, and I appreciate that framing because uh, I know as as one that that sells such services, um, I, it's you know from an ethical practice standpoint. What I try to tell folks is, I can't guarantee you success. I can get what we're going to do is de-risk. The whole process is 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 de-risking, but that doesn't sound very sexy, right? It's just, <laughs> especially, yeah. I think when you know, and, and we we've talked about Doblin's uh, ten types of innovation before, and even realizing that there's more than just shiny technology where you could innovate. But I I think sometimes folks jump to you know new technology breakthroughs. Uh, as, as, as one kind of uh, barrier, but when you're when you're talking about de-risking, you're talking about prototyping, you're talking about learning. I, I feel like that. <laughs> so Zoom decided to just drop. So Zoom wasn't interested in what I had to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I lost you when you started talking about the ten types of innovation from Dom. Yeah, just just think, just helping people realize that more than technology, that there's many ways that that one can innovate. And I, my experience seems to be we we tend to look at new tech and tech breakthroughs as being the only way we might innovate. And I think that is another is how to appropriately manage expectations. That there are many ways we can innovate from from the business, from the customer experience, and sharing that. But just for me, from an ethical standpoint, like you know, when we're talking about risk management and innovation, actually being able to de-risk your future doesn't sound nearly as sexy as like, well, you know, when are we going to have jetpacks and when are you going to beam me to yeah. the moon, right? That yeah. I, th I think those are some of the gaps that we have. Yeah, it's very hard to hide in innovation from the explosion of of technologies, right? The problem is that when you do that, then suddenly you get into this problem again. How do you delineate from um, uh, technology modernization from digital transformation is the big buzzword these days, right? Uh, wh where's the line there between that and, or, or automation, right? Um, between that and innovation, right? And uh, technology, no, on the other hand, no matter what te technology, uh, what innovation you're pursuing, technology eventually will play a role in order uh, to scale it up mm -hmm. and to personalize it, which is huge nowadays for user experience, et cetera, right? And, um, and so again, uh, the, the benefit of focus, focusing on non-technology innovation in the process, that's typically process innovation and user experience innovation, those types of things, um, potentially uh, partnership innovations, business model innovations, is um, to make it more sustainable, right? To, to make it something that is not a, a flash in the pan, right? But it's something that really 
creates growth for the company and not just uh, some kind of hype, right? That That is over uh, within three months again. Thank you. Uh, so when, uh, when you were like through your career, sorry, just want to jump back to the, um, one of the, you also serve, one of the things that you didn't mention, but uh, see if it's worth talking about. You also served as editor in chief for, for an academic journal. And I'm curious uh, if you don't mind talking about that. And uh, from a, from my own personal nerd standpoint, I think it's fascinating that you're able to see like, what are people working, right? It's like, for me, it's, it, <laughs> I know, I know you were working, right. But for me, the, the selfish side of me, it seems like that's a wonderful way to just see where, where are new ideas being generated? Where, where are people spending their energy and focus? But do you mind talking about what it was like being an editor in chief of a, a journal? Yeah, sure. I, I have to actually step back a little bit and put it in a larger context throughout my career. I was always, if you want, uh, uh, contemplating academia or industry, right? And one of the reasons uh, why I didn't decide potentially for academia, I hope he will never listen to this podcast, is because my father was so dominant in our space, computer graphics in academia, that um, no matter where I went, I wasn't myself, I was the son of. Right. right. So actually, I once had an offer for full-time professor, uh, full professorship at a university, and I went into the room for my kind of final uh, powwow with with the committee, and one of the people that I haven't talked to before, uh, his the first words out of his mouth was some anecdote of when he had met with my father, etc. And that was kind of for me the deciding factor of saying this, I will never be able to, to kind of earn my own <laughs> keeps, right? And, right. and to, to, to show what, what I could do. And so I went more for the industry side and, and for the application side, uh, but continued my passion for teaching. So I was, wherever I was, always an adjunct at the co-located university and taught um, computer graphics, information visualization, computer graphics for game design, user experience design, you name it. Those, those things that were of relevance to me. Um, even had a stint at the University of Iowa as a, a professor of practice for a, f uh, a few years. And um, so also that journal that you're mentioning was actually not a journal, it was a magazine. And the difference is that magazines are supposed to be written in a more consumable way to also be accessible to practitioners. So even there, if you want, it was a more, uh, significantly important or so that it was uh, kind of the human interface, right? So that it's not just for this, community of academics, they all have their same structure and their own language and nobody else understands what they're writing about really. And there's a method to the madness versus, uh, you know, translating that into something that practitioners can understand and can apply. And um, so that is in that context. And um, yeah, it, it was a great experience. Uh, it's always cool. Not only do we uh, get to hear what others are writing, we can define if you want the special issues. So the topics that we believe are relevant for the future and that we want to see. So before I joined actually the magazine, um, 
other people had had the first publications about augmented reality in that magazine, right? Long before it actually became a buzzword in in the wider space, right? And um, and so that's what really excited me about that. Uh, it's also a lot of work, uh, quite honestly. And uh, one challenge is that since it's only a magazine, right? It's not relevant uh, or not that relevant for um, a tenure track. And so it's hard to actually get people, uh, you know, the, from academia to publish in there, because also a, you know, it's not that relevant for tenure track, then they have to translate it into something that's more readable, right, it has to be more applied, which is also a challenge for them, because that's not something necessarily value uh, being valued in, in, in academia. And so there's a more work for them involved. Uh, but we did very well. And it's a well established magazine. And, and, yeah, it's it's doing very well. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I, I remember when I was doing my, uh, my master's research and, and, you know, getting academic papers together. And to your point about user interface and technology, my one of my hunches was, it still feels like academic journals are very stilted in their presentation. And uh, and some of that I've wondered, is it still like folklore tied to what they could set in a in a press? decades ago right the 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 graphics and the tables aren't very communicative the right the structure the it, there's not a lot of leeway uh, and so to your point it does i think it requires a very specialized audience to even see the value in uh, or the novelty in what might be extracted from that but i was just kind of curious uh, from your perspective on on folklore and how that sets in on on certain media in this case academic journals when you say folklore, tell me a little more what you mean with that. Just basically, we've always done it that way. So, you know, so like I, I think about way back when, like things had to be photo ready, right? For, uh, and now the things that we could do with digital objects to get those, uh, even as a two-dimensional element in a journal seems like uh, it's still it's still black and white. It's still tables. It's still this certain kind yeah. of font, this spacing, it's so prescriptive. Um, it, and it, and I'm not sure like what it would take to reinvestigate those rules to make it more interesting, more helpful. It, feel, yeah. it feels like it's just begetting itself in kind of a aesthetically boring presentation. Yeah. Um, so there are multiple uh, things to unpack here. One is um, a poor use of technology, right? All the people that publish are volunteers from the, the, the authors, if you want, to, to the reviewers, to the editorial board, et cetera, right? All volunteers. And so, um, you know, they want to maximize the throughput. And so they need an automated system. As soon as you use an automated system, you have to give people templates and they're very restrictive. We constantly have that issue in, in the magazine that I work for. By the way, it's IEEE Computer Graphics and Applications, putting a little plug in here, yeah. great magazine. <laughs> um, and 
we are one of the few, obviously, magazines that requires a lot of images because it's, guess what, computer graphics. You can't just talk about computer graphics. You have to show it. Nowadays, it's even worse because it's about animations and interactive graphics. So even, you know, static images are not enough anymore. But the templates are designed for the whole IEEE computer society including signal processing and theoretical computer science, whatever it might be, that don't require graphics, right? And so it's very restrictive. And then you have a page count, right? But how many words is an image, right? And, and so you're getting into, into all, all those aspects. I think a, a more, uh, an equally relevant, but maybe more ironic issue is um, that, uh, most people have not been educated how well commu to communicate with graphs and data, right? So even the people that are creating them, the academics that are creating those information visualization have learned uh, to use them effectively potentially for analysis, but now they have to take their knowledge and actually communicate it. And often what's being done is they just use the same graphs that came out of their analysis not realizing that to communicate it to an audience, you might have to change it, right? Because you're, you're, you're not trying to find insights, you're trying to communicate insights. Now that still works if you're communicating to your peers, right? And right. so that's why these academic uh, journals don't have so much of an issue. But then when you go outside of that and, um, and try to communicate it to a broader audience, Right, it, it creates kind of the, that that conflict, right? That's hard to resolve. And asking an academic to change their graphs, to publish it in a different, try that. I mean, it, it will be an interesting experience for you. But I have also seen that in 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 corporations that I work for, right? I had on the first day at at ACT when I showed up there, the VP of then VP of research come to me, show me his his paper about the great assessment they do, and say. Can you help me? I cannot get any traction for that so that we get funding to actually pursue it. And this there could be a lot of money here for, for the company and, and, and stuff. And I'm looking at the paper, right? The title was probably four lines long, right? So there's already a turnoff for anyone who wants to read. And it, it talked about, I don't know, the algorithm or so there, right? Rather than saying, you know, here's an opportunity to make much more money. Right. So what is actually being taught in general communication classes, right, how to effectively communicate is something that is not being taught to, to those audiences. They've never learned that, right? Um, or in which class from middle school, high school, college, do you actually learn about how to effectively uh, communicate with data? Very few. Right. That's why I actually you know, uh, you know, why a university was willing to pick me up if you want, because I had kind of a scars um, uh, offering, which is information visualization, right? But it's booming now because we have now the tools to do that very effectively. And we just have to train our workforce. Thank you. Uh, want to talk to is you I mean, you have so many different interests, interests and, and the overlaps. But one of the things I like to cover with guests uh, so in any of these areas, when you're doing, maybe when you're doing research, but do you ever feel stuck or do you have techniques to get unstuck when you're tackling a, an interesting innovation problem or data visualization problem? 
does alcohol count? <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> um, so so uh, I don't have a formal approach uh, to that. Um, that happens obviously sometimes, maybe regularly. Um, since I have so many um, interests or things to work on, typically I let it lay for a little bit of time. Uh, in other times, uh, or in general, I, I try not to do anything by myself, but with others, because others give new perspectives, gives give new ideas, and um, uh, you know, I, I have no exclusive rights on, on the best solution, right? And there's right. often more than one solution. And so it's, it, it is this iterative process really that, that helps me often uh, to get unstuck. Um, sometimes though, you have to realize, especially when you're in innovation, that you might just be ahead of your time, right? And you might just have to give up at that point and I can't tell you how often I'm the type of person that archives everything they do. And, and I can't tell you how often I pulled it then out of the head and, and said, you know, here's something three years ago, we discussed that we have to completely revisit it, but um, maybe it's ready now. Right. And, and uh, sometimes you have to do that in order not to, get stuck with something and miss opportunities that might be much easier to realize. Thank you. Uh, one of the other topics I like to cover with guests is the notion of advice. So it kind of overlaps with kind of getting unstuck. Uh, but uh, when it comes to advice, some of the patterns that have played out have been what's good advice that you've received. Uh, sometimes, you know, it might have been an elder who had a great <laughs> A great statement for something that we kind of brushed off because we thought we knew everything when we were younger and then we realized that was a pretty elegant payload that they had on the way they framed it or i steal from austin cleon's book steal like an artist when we're giving advice we're just talking to our younger self so it may be advice you wish you would have received but either or both of those are there any advice that you have for uh in this case aspiring innovators um yeah, I don't think anybody should ever listen to my advice because, uh, you know, I, I also just floated through my career, if you want. But maybe a word of wisdom, since I have enough gray hairs now to, to be eligible for that. Um, when we are younger, we think everything is so terminal. Everything is so important. Everything is is if this doesn't work out now, then it's the end of life or, or everybody will remember that we failed at something. And none of this is true, right? Uh, nobody cares, nobody, uh, or if they care, they, they don't take one failure as the reason for never uh, looking at you or talking to you again or hiring you again or so. And um, nothing is that important that, it, um, it is the reason to put, uh, you know, your whole existence uh, to, to, to hang your, your whole existence on that. And that um, new opportunities will arise, new exciting things will happen, new technology will come, uh, new people that, that uh, um, uh, potentially reinvigorate old ideas, right? So everything is dynamic, everything is in motion. And knowing this now, I'm now in a position where I just don't care anymore, 
right? I think this is really a benefit of, of, of age, right? We care less and less. And because of that, we become so more uh, uh, liberate, right? To, to explore new things and, and try new things or revisit old things. It's, uh, that's why there are so many innovators over 40, right? Because they have stopped caring about the little failures along the way or the little barriers, etc. I think this is really my main advice to also to my kids because they take everything so seriously and personally and, and terminally. <laughs> oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thinking about too that just uh, I think a good reminder that uh, it's we can take our work seriously, but don't take ourselves so seriously, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's another part because taking yourself so seriously is a reflection or projection of you thinking that everybody else is looking at you, right? <laughs> and it's just that there's so many other things now to look at, right? I mean, it's absolutely. it's just if it was the 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 case. Uh, decades ago it's certainly not the case anymore right we're looking at the iphone or whatever the, the mobile device of of the of the day is yeah well miguel thank you so much for uh taking the time to join me on the podcast it's it's always a pleasure to to sit down and talk with you but i really appreciate you sharing your your insights with the broader audience today yeah, thanks for having me on and and listening to to everything I had to say. I know I'm, you know, talk a lot when I'm getting excited, but again, I I don't care. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs>